0: Well, I want to invite you to go ahead and open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Do you guys even remember the gospel of Mark? You remember? It seems like forever since we've studied a passage, and so it'll serve us well to get reacquainted. I have titled this message, A True Identity Crisis, and perhaps you've heard of someone sharing or describing what they're going through as an identity crisis. What does that even mean? I did some quality research via Google and Wikipedia, and um, I wanted to see what the world had to say, and so here's a snapshot that I found. According to dictionary.com, an identity crisis can be defined as a period of uncertainty and confusion in which a person's sense of identity becomes insecure, typically due to a change in their expected aims or role in society. Wikipedia had these insights to share. In psychology, the term identity crisis, coined by psychologist Eric Erickson, means the failure to achieve ego identity during adolescence. The stage of psychosocial development in which identity crisis may occur is called the identity cohesion versus role confusion. During this stage, adolescents are faced with physical growth, Sexual maturity, and integrating ideas of themselves and about what others think of them. Adolescents therefore form their self image and endure the task of resolving the crisis of their basic ego identity. Successful resolution of the crisis depends on one's progress through previous developmental stages centering on issues such as trust, autonomy, and initiative. Erickson's own interest in identity began in childhood. Born Jewish, interesting, uh, Erickson felt that he was an outsider. He later studies, uh, had studies of the cultural life among the Yurik Indians of Northern California and the Sioux Indians of South Dakota, which helped formalize Erickson's ideas about identity development and identity crisis. Erickson described those going through an identity crisis as exhibiting confusion, end quote. Thank you for enduring those insights from Wikipedia. And nearly every source of information that I found had uh, words that were connected with an identity crisis. They, They were uncertainty or insecurity or confusion. Have you ever been confused about your identity? And is there any validity to such a concept? How might our passage today... In Mark chapter 12, and our Lord's instruction, give us greater clarity and insight. Please join me as I read God's infallible word before we study it together. Mark 12, verses 35 through 37, says this in the NAS. And Jesus began to say, as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. If you're reading that passage for the very first time, Or if you're reading it for the first time in a long time, it takes a little bit, doesn't it, to to process everything that is going on. So it's my hope that as we study it, you're going to get your arms around uh, every detail in this passage. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Father, grant us grace to understand your word. Guide us by your spirit with an illuminated pathway to the comprehension and application that you would have us take away from this study. Challenge us in the areas where we are weak. Convict us and bring us to repentance in the areas where there is sin and unbelief in our hearts. And encourage us in the areas where we find strength in the provision of Christ. Bless our time in Christ's mighty name. We pray. Amen. Amen. Well, it has been some time since we've been in the book of Mark, and I need to refresh our context. The greater context of Mark, as with all the gospel accounts, focuses on the identity of Christ. That is their purpose. Matthew's gospel focuses on Jesus as king. Luke's gospel features Jesus as the son of man. And John's gospel strongly identifies Jesus as the son of God. Mark's gospel account, as we've learned, focuses on Jesus as a servant. And there is a specific verse that is like the John 3.16 of Mark that resonates and, and provides a rippling effect, a tone throughout the gospel that we covered in Mark 10.45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. You could plumb the depths of Mark 10:45, and never reach the bottom. That, that verse alone, you could focus on it and consider it and keep, keep it before you and principles of application and, and the reality of servanthood would, would never stop because of who Christ is, because of what he's done. Christ's life and ministry is the ultimate expression of servanthood. Throughout Mark's account, we've witnessed the compassion and consistency of his service as Mark employs this word immediately, immediately Jesus and the disciples went immediately they went thirty nine times in sixteen chapters was Mark John Mark led by the Holy Spirit to to use this word immediately reflecting Christ's incredible passion and pace of servanthood. Now let's go to the nearer context because mark brings us to uh, the end of chapter 11 and to chapter 12 which i've labeled the conspiracy chapter this is passion week Uh, it is his passion that uh, we talk about at the the final week of his life that is identified where he, he goes to the cross and specifically it is at the week of passover covered my mistake right there it was, it's Passover week, and Passover is going to take place on Friday of this week. So, where are we at in the week? This is Wednesday, just two days away from his crucifixion. Jesus, as you'll recall, had just cleared the temple, and now the religious leaders have conspired against Jesus in full force. They approached him in Mark 11 after the, the temple clearing, and they asked him specifically by what authority. Are you doing this? Who gives you the right to do this? And then they began this series of attacks that were designed to trap Jesus. The first one came from the Pharisees and the Herodians as they tried to trap Jesus on whether it was appropriate to pay taxes to Caesar. The second trap came from the Sadducees as they tried to trap him And get him to say something false about resurrection. The scribes then come and uh, a specific scribe, probably one of the the legal experts, maybe the elite legal expert, comes and asks him about the greatest commandment. And so these representatives of the Sanhedrin were desperately seeking a way to discredit Jesus and even... More importantly, they would like to get him to say something that would trip him up with the Roman government and officials so that they would go ahead and just put an end to him and his ministry. The scribe who asked the question about the greatest commandments, he gets an unanticipated response from the Lord who told him he was not far from the kingdom of God. And we learn that this was really a stark rebuke. The scribe represented the religious elite of this time. And if anyone was expected to make it into the kingdom of God, it would have been him. Consequently, verse 34 ends by saying, After this, no one would dare to ask Jesus any more questions. Now our Lord does what he does often throughout the Gospels. He turns the table. We've seen him do this many times. And he begins to ask the questions. And perhaps it was uh, the, the, the Lord's um, desire to put uh, uh, questions out on the table that made me take an interrogative approach to the sermon outline that's in your bulletin. You'll see that both of our our, our, our points involve questions. I'm calling them two clarifying questions so that we see how Jesus points to himself as the Messiah while exposing the unbelief of Israel's leaders. Let's survey them together. Question one, do you have any misconceptions about Christ's identity? Israel's leaders did. And so what lessons might the Lord have us take to heart as we look at verse 35? The second question, do you affirm David's spirit-led testimony of Christ's identity as Lord? Israel's leaders did not. And so what is the significance and the brilliance of Jesus quoting Psalm 110 and his response? We're going to look at that. Psalm 110, by the way, is the most quoted psalm in all of the New Testament. We're going to see what happens in verses 36 and 37. Israel's leaders suffered a major identity crisis. Their failure to identify Jesus correctly as Christ and Lord prohibited them from understanding their own identity. And worse yet, they couldn't be saved. Only a true Christology can lead to a true soteriology or salvation. Understanding Christ's identity is the key to understanding our own identity, which we'll see as we answer these questions. Let's dig out some answers together and start with pregunta numero uno, as my Spanish friends like to say. Okay, Do you have any misconceptions about Christ's identity? Again, the leaders of Israel did, and thus Jesus asked the question that he does in verse 35 to expose them. So let's look at it. And Jesus began to say as he taught in the temple, how is it? that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David. He is using this question to expose their misconceptions about Messiah's identity. Every Jew believed that Messiah or Christ would be a physical descendant of David. This was taught in the scriptures in multiple places. But the primary go-to text, the proof text, is in 2 Samuel 7, 11 through 16 which is the go-to text for the Davidic covenant. It involves Nathan the prophet, is speaking to David, and starting in second Samuel 7:12, it says, "When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom." Verse 13, "He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever." I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. And then we see other passages in the Old Testament. The prophet Jeremiah in chapter 33, 15 says, In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. Then there is Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. Isaiah 11, 1. Ezekiel 34, 23, and 24 just giving you these scriptures there's 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 plenty more psalm 18 hosea 3 5 amos nine eleven. 11 just to, to name a few so my point for mentioning all those references is they understood this okay the israelites especially the leadership would have heard these texts before and so it would be accurate to say that the common belief among all of them is that christ would be a descendant of david Looking through the lens of the Old Testament, we see that everyone in Israel would know that Christ came from, would come from David's line. But what is more interesting is that during this time, the general population was already acknowledging Jesus as the son of David. Pretty wild. And most of the evidence comes in Matthew's gospel account, which we know was written to a primarily Jewish audience. In Matthew 9, 27, it was two blind men who called out to Jesus saying, have mercy on us, son of David. Again, in Matthew 12, 23, all the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? Matthew 15, the Canaanite woman, she approached Jesus and said, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly, demon-possessed. Even in Mark's account, when we, started, uh, we studied uh, blind Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus back in uh, Mark 10, 47, he addressed Jesus in the same fashion, son of David. In fact, this chanting from the crowd sometimes of son of David so annoyed the religious leaders that Luke said that they asked Jesus to rebuke the disciples for what they were saying. Why did the people say this? Well, first, Jesus was born in the line of David. And both his father and his mother, we know, came from the the line of Judah, connected to David's line. And Matthew and Luke's genealogies both attest to this fact. And what I was thinking about this in my study, I don't think it's ironic that Jesus is having this encounter where at the temple And the temple was the place where all the genealogies and all the records were stored. And a Jew, uh, uh, an Israelite, could go in and they could look at those records. And you can rest assured that as Jesus was growing in his popularity, they were going to the, the, the record books. The leaders were. There's another reason why the people said this. Jesus had an amazing knowledge of Scripture. Luke 2.47 says that the teachers in the temple were amazed at Jesus' understanding and his answers to their questions. He was a master of Scripture. He rebuked his enemies with the text, not insults. His trademark, we, we know this, have you not read? It is written, right? We see him saying that repeatedly. There's a third reason they said this. Jesus spoke amazing words and had brilliant exposition in his teaching. You'll recall the account in John 7 where the temple guards were, were sent to arrest Jesus, right? And they come back to the leaders empty-handed. And what do they say in John 7? Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. were. Anyway, I would imagine we're afraid to lay hands on him because Jesus we're told was speaking the words of the Father in John 1250. A fourth reason that they were saying this was that Jesus produced numerous miracles in John three Nicodemus told Jesus, "No one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him when Jesus healed a blind and mute man and Matthew 12, 23, they said, This can't be the son of David, can he? The same thing happened later at the Feast of Tabernacles when the crowd said, When the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? Everyone was aware, not just because of the the power of the works, which are captivating, but the the sheer volume of, of the works and we get to the end of chapter John, uh, uh, of the gospel of John and we say you know not all the books of the world can't even contain them so when Jesus uses the word Christ here in verse 35 he is implying that the messiah would be more than a man and the jews were mistakenly only focusing on the human aspect or element so Jesus is about to show them that the Messiah will be human, but he will also be God. And they weren't ready for this truth any more than our world is ready to receive it. And most people in our world today are just like the scribes and Pharisees. They'll, they'll, they'll be okay with some of the Bible stories about Jesus. Everyone loves the Christmas image of baby Jesus in the manger Some even enjoy reading about him, about his feeding of multitudes, his healing of the sick, his raising of the dead and walking on water. And they can even tolerate, some, what takes place during the crucifixion because it's followed by the resurrection. But most people in our culture cannot grasp the truth that Jesus is more than a baby in a manger. Or a man that happened to to get himself crucified. They cannot seem to grasp the truth that he is God in human flesh. They cannot get their minds around the truth that he is the only way to God. And that he is the only hope of salvation. People will only go so far. They're willing, right, to acknowledge some truths. But they're only going to go so far. And not far is a dangerous place to be when it comes to your relationship with Christ. Like the scribe in the previous passage, some people are not far from the kingdom of God. And we know this, not far is still a long way off. Not far still means that you'll spend an eternity apart from the Lord. Not far is not where you need to stay. Jesus Christ is is the only hope of salvation. He is the only door that leads to eternal life. With him, you are saved. Without him, you are lost forever. Again, an only a true Christology, a study, a true and accurate study of Christ leads to an accurate soteriology or application of redemption. Practically, how should this impact us as believers? First and foremost, It should call us to a place of worship as we celebrate God's grace because he allowed us to see the true identity of his son. Think about that. You and I can't take credit. We didn't figure it out on our own. God acted. God gave us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth. Just this week, Uh, one of the couples in our care group was sharing their testimony. And as, uh, not this week, it was a couple weeks ago. Um, It was a different couple this week, or half a couple. I'm sorry, (laughs) the wife wasn't there. But anyway, going back a couple weeks ago, um, the the, the guy, the the husband was sharing his testimony and he talked about the fact that he had been um, in church and he had been exposed to teaching But nobody told him who Jesus is. Nobody affirmed his identity. And when somebody finally did that, that is what the Lord used for the lights to come on. And he recognized him for who he is that he is Lord, that he is Savior. It's powerful. And every one of us that uh, is born again knows that truth too, that God did that work. He helped us to see his identity. We're going to talk about how that changes us under our second point. So Jesus confronts them about their misconceptions concerning the nature and identity of Messiah. How does he do this? He intentionally uses a specific scripture, which leads us to the second question in your outline. Do you affirm David's spirit-led testimony of Christ's identity as Lord? Again, Israel's leaders did not. Look at verse 36. Jesus states, David himself said in the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet Jesus quotes and asks them about Psalm 110 verse 1 and I want to invite you to turn there so you can see this because we're going to spend uh, some time here this verse was acknowledged by all the Jews to be a reference to the coming Messiah and Jesus points out that a careful reading of this verse reveals the truth that the Messiah will be more than a man it does in great measure Our English translations limit us a little bit. The first Lord in Psalm 110 is the Hebrew word Yahweh. And the second Lord in that verse is the Hebrew word Adonai, which means Lord, Master, or Sovereign Ruler. A literal literal translation of your verse, and you're welcome if you're a Bible writer, to go ahead and put this in because I, I, this is, this is one, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. And this verse 1 has huge implications. So if you want to write this in, I think it would serve you well. Yahweh said to my sovereign ruler. That's what that's saying. Yahweh said to my sovereign lu- uh, ruler, Adonai. In other words, David addresses the Messiah as his sovereign. And the implication is clear the Messiah is to be a man, but he is to be more than a man. He is to be God as well. And Jesus is crystal clear in his statement. And when you, you re- review this verse, you see some things that they would have even have agreed with. First, he says that David himself says this in the psalm as the author of the psalm. And then he added additional weight to his argument when he says, in the Holy Spirit. And by doing this, Jesus affirms what the religious leaders already agreed upon, which is that David's the author, and David is under the full inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In essence, God wrote through, th- through David the prophet, and there can be no arguing with these words. The authority has been clearly established by their own scriptures. You know, how can we not be awestruck and captivated by the precision of God's word? It's incredible. And, and I'll share it. my study this week just captured my heart and drew me in with even a greater appreciation as I saw something that I never saw before that I want to share with you. What is also interesting to note here is that Psalm 110 perfectly illustrates something that Jesus said at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.18. You don't need to turn there, I'm just going to read it for you. Jesus said, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. You ever really fully understood that? Maybe. Some insights. Let me, let me share something that's just dynamic about Psalm 110, verse 1. The KJ, well, in this verse first, uh, Matthew 5, 5.18, the smallest letter, okay? The KJV says, not one jot or tittle, instead of smallest letter. Well, the ESV, I believe, says iota. Or or one iota or dot, is that right? Okay? What are these? And how come they can't pass from the law? What does that mean? If we take a closer look at the Hebrew word Adonai in Psalm 110, which is the second word translated Lord, we already confirmed that it could mean Lord, Master, Sovereign Ruler. When we look closely at the letters of, the, the Hebrew letters of the word, Adonai. And by the way, Hebrew's called the dark side in seminary because it reads backwards, and it's, it's, um, it, it, it's difficult. Greek um, is, well, at least from my experience, Isaiah, I don't know about for you, a little bit easier than, than Hebrew. The last letter of the Hebrew word, Adonai, is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet called a yod. Okay, yod. Is the letter. And when Yod is at the end of a Hebrew word, it always takes a possessive form. That's why it's translated, My Lord. And so, if this Yod was removed from the root and the word was just Adon instead of Adonai, right, it would be translated, Yahweh. It would not say, Yahweh says to my Lord, but would say, Yahweh says to a Lord. And there would be no connection to David, the author of this psalm. Now think about this for a moment, because this is, this is incredibly powerful testimony of Scripture. That little yod, that little dot, the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It looks like a comma in our English grammar. That's, that's really what it looks like. God used this as the linchpin that designated how this Old Testament verse featured Christ or Messiah as David's Lord and sovereign ruler. This one little jot. And who's he talking to in our context? Who's it? Go back to it. The scribes, right? in the scribes when it came to handling god's word they were meticulous about the details every jot and tittle it was the word of god you better get it right right they felt the weight of that they felt the pressure of that 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 yod it, it elevates the significance of all the other messianic passages And it helps us understand why it is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Because of how strategically and how precisely it points to Jesus Christ. It also gives us an example of the smallest letter or stroke not passing from the law until all is accomplished. Until what's accomplished, you ask? Until Jesus Christ comes And fulfills the righteousness of the law. And now the law's purpose truly serves as a tutor for both Jew and Gentile so that we would be justified by faith. And you can see that exact description in Galatians 3.24. It affirms it. So now, if you're tracking with me, the full authority of Psalm 110 is established. It's affirmed. The question initially asked has a crystal clear answer that should be obvious to Israel's leaders. How is it that David, the great king, can call the Christ, who is David's son, long after he dies, how does he call the Christ his Lord? And the answer can only be one thing. The testimony of the Holy Spirit affirms The testimony of scripture. The Christ is more than the the son of David. Much more. Christ must be the son of God. Jesus is very clearly declaring the deity of Messiah. And the remainder of Psalm 110 does the same. If you look at it. When Yahweh said to the Messiah. Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Here I favor the NASB because uh, it has the uh, yours capitalized. Okay, If you have the ESV, they might be lowercase. He was placing the Messiah in a position of authority that was co-equal with Almighty God. And the word sit in that verse speaks of a continuous sitting. God would elevate the Messiah to a place of equal exaltation with himself. Messiah must be God because he will be in a position of absolute equality with God in his honor, in his power, and his glory. When Jesus asked the initial question and then followed it by quoting Psalm 110, he then goes a step further with a follow up question at the beginning of verse 37 when he says, David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? He's getting their their minds away from the human element and he's using something that even goes against the very traditions that were common in ancient Israel. And it needs to be noted. A father would never call his son Lord. A father never rendered that kind of honor to a child children were considered property and never superior to their fathers and david looks at this one who is to be his son and david calls him lord this is a true declaration that the messiah is to be more than a man he is to be a god man and when the jews heard this i'm telling you they had to be mesmerized If we were there for that encounter that Jesus just had as he handled the text with absolute crystal clear precision, I'm telling you, their jaws dropped and and the silence was deafening. They couldn't respond. There was no, no, no place to move. The implication he was making about Messiah as he pointed to himself was crystal clear. How would they respond? Well, we don't hear from the scribes. But if you look at the end of verse 37, it says that the crowd enjoyed listening to him. And you can imagine just how thoroughly uh, they enjoyed seeing these religious hypocrites get put in their place, right? Oh, they loved it. Who wouldn't? But the conclusion That Jesus reaches and is now revealing to the leaders as well as to the entire crowd. By David's own handwriting, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is revealed as David's Lord. And the implied question is to everyone that is standing there. Jesus is asking them, by implication, will you recognize me as your Lord? Will you recognize me as your Lord? And there they are looking at Him. I mean, the Savior, the Lord Himself, right? Eye to eye. To eye. I need to share something that's very important to understand. We don't make Jesus Lord. He is Lord. Okay, hear hear that clearly in your own heart. We don't make him Lord. He is Lord already. He is Lord over everyone on this planet. You, me, or anyone else. Whether they act like it or they don't. And the reality of his identity is never going to change. But God graciously allows believers to, to see and understand how his identity changes us forever. At the beginning of the message, I introduced this concept of identity crisis, and I confirm that every single source um, there, there, there's this this matter of uncertainty and confusion and insecurity, as there should be. As there should be. Title of the message: The True A true identity crisis. The identity crisis isn't the Lord's. No. His identity has been well established for all of eternity past, and it will be well established for all eternity future. The identity crisis and the confusion is our problem due to sin and living in a fallen world. Every single person on the planet, must face their identity crisis at some point in their lifetime. The question is, how will you reconcile it? Will you try to find your identity in the things of this world? Will you try to find your identity in a career path or a job? Will you try to find your identity by the sport or the instrument that you play? Will you try to find it in your business or financial success? Perhaps you'll look for identity in a dating relationship or in marriage. Maybe you think you'll find it if you promote the healthiest image that you can promote or how well that you're liked. True believers, we know that all of those identities, none of them will satisfy by divine design. We know this. Only when we find our identity in Christ can we reconcile this crisis. A Christless life is a crisis life. That's the takeaway. A Christless life is a crisis life. If you're a young person here today, can I just have your attention and give you an exhortation that I hope that you never forget? Find your identity in Christ. Find your identity in Christ and nothing else because this world is going to deceive you and it's going to tempt you in numerous ways to find it some other way. It is. And your life will be crisis. It will be crisis, I'm just telling you. It's just a matter of time before you'll have your identity crisis by divine design. That's a measure of God's grace, isn't it? Nothing outside of Christ will ever satisfy. Without Christ, you're going to spend your entire life searching. Your life will always be filled with insecurities until you find your complete security in the Lord. For everyone who believes, our identity in Christ changes us. But it does lead to a very practical question, right? How? And so I was reading um, different commentaries, and I actually found some key insights on unlocking the Bible that I wanted to share, and I had them put up on PowerPoint, so if you can cue those up, Peter. How does our identity in Christ change our lives? And you can jot these down along with the scripture references. Number one, believers no longer chase after the desires of, of our flesh, but instead seek to bring God glory in the areas of our life. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever if we are not seeking to find our identity in christ alone then we're seeking to find it in something i think everyone gets that however when our identity is in the eternal things of christ we'll not be crushed by our failures and weaknesses we won't fall into the pride of worldly successes or despair even disappointments or tragedy we won't get lost seeking the attractive but empty things that the world offers because Christ gives us a stable and eternal hope in a world of unstable hopelessness. It's also important to add this. We we do live in the world, right? And so there is a possibility just with your work that you're going to have to identify with some of the things of the world. We get that. We identify because we, we have to with some of those things. The passage and the point is to see the distinction between identifying with some of the things of this world versus finding your identity in the things of this world number two next slide please we no longer fear the future for all who are being led by the spirit of god these are sons of god for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again when you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Romans 8, 14, and 15. And if we have peace with God, then we have nothing to fear on this earth when it comes to our future. And Isaiah's going to be te- teaching on fearing God, second hour. So I, notice what I'm putting the emphasis on as it relates to our future. It doesn't mean that we don't fear God, because Scripture commands us to. It just means that the future is sure. Our eternities are secure as adopted sons and daughters of Christ. So we don't need to fear if financial collapse comes, losing our job, getting this disease or that disease, or being ridiculed for our faith. And of course, these things aren't easy to deal with, But we can have confidence that our Heavenly Father is sovereign over every moment of our life and will equip us to handle the things that he ordained. He bought us with the blood of Christ. We sang about it. I I, I loved it. I don't know about you guys, but I could just, uh, uh, it it was like a skipping record. Nothing but the blood, nothing but the blood, nothing but the blood of Jesus. We sang it over again. We are purchased by that blood, nothing but the blood, nothing but the blood. And we, we could sing it all day. It's beautiful, and we can trust that he'll provide everything that we need in this world. Our identity in Christ has given us direct access to our Heavenly Father, whom we can call on with confidence and complete trust. And we know that. Number three, next slide, please. Believers have no need to judge or compare themselves to others when we seek to please Christ alone in whom our identity is hidden. James 4, 11 and 12 says, Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? This is a in the context of James, is a series of tests, right? And this is providing evidence, right? Um, believers, we, our job is to be consumed with ourselves, right? And how we're walking with the Lord, not necessarily peeking over the neighbor's fence in judgment. Comparing ourselves to those around us or judging the decisions of others can suck the spiritual life right out of us. Biblical convictions are hard and fast truths that God has given us in his word to show us the way to live. Personal convictions, however, are decisions we make within our own families that may be right for one family but wrong for another. And it's easy to confuse the two and to be tempted to judge others who have different personal convictions than we do, right? And this can also create insecurity in our own choices due to our desire to please man over God. So let's be careful that we're not imposing our personal convictions on others. We can ask Christ for wisdom in this area of personal convictions while being open to hear and discern others' perspectives without judgment and then walk in confidence that God is the only one we need to honor and please in these decisions, as James just affirmed. The other way we compare ourselves is it, with gifts and blessings, and this is what they said, we are all created with the purpose of glorifying God, but in the unique ways uh, but in the unique ways God has created us. One person is filled with creativity while another glorifies God with a beautiful voice. One person glorifies God as a CEO while another glories him by doing custodial work. One person glorifies God in the way they seek to raise their family while another glorifies him in the way they use their singleness to serve him. We must seek to glorify Christ in the gifts and talents that he has uniquely chosen for us and not get lost in the joy-sucking pursuit of being something God never created us to be. Don't miss out on the blessing of serving Christ with what he has chosen for you. It's so good. I'll give you one more, and that's a, a short one, and we'll close. Number four, we should not be surprised when suffering comes, but we can be confident that it will produce things of eternal value. So important. Romans eight sixteen and 17, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and of children heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. If our identity is in Christ, we know this as a result of following him, that we are going to suffer. We're going to suffer also just as a result of being in a sin-fallen world. Just as Christ's sufferings were not hopeless and wasted, neither will ours be. Christ's suffering defeated sin and death, and we identify with him as he uses suffering to put sin to death in us, to make us reflect more of him. Not only does this suffering sanctify us, but it assures us that our suffering with Him for a while that will one day be glorified with Him. Amen, Church. Amen. And let us all take some time to meditate on these scriptures this week. Just your identity. I don't know how much you've thought about it, young people. I know that this is. I look back to just even when when I was a teenager and just how incredibly lost and hopeless I was. It was a dark season. I don't envy you. I, I really don't. Being a teenager is hard. But it's a critical stage. And, and I hope you've taken these words to heart. Because every believing adult will let you know. The, the, those that got saved later in life. And I was in my late 20s. And people who were saved in their 30s and 40s. They'll always tell you. Oh how they wish somebody shared the gospel with them. And that they found their identity in Christ. Right out of the gate right out of making decisions. His identity is crystal clear. And may ours be as well as we continue to share his identity with others. Hey, let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're gracious. You're merciful, you're compassionate. We thank you for your kindness to um, unveil the truth of the gospel. Oh, Lord, all words fail to express our appreciation over this incredible reality that you did what only you could do. You saved us from pursuing another identity. You put an end to our identity crisis. And you brought Christ into our life. And his identity forever changes ours. And we pray, Father, that as we move forward as believers, we know that the things of this world are going to tug back at us and are going to continue to have us pursue our identity in our profession, in our roles, in our different responsibilities. And Lord, help us to fight against it. It's okay to be a doctor, but let us be a Christian doctor. It's okay to be a musician, but let us be Christian musicians and athletes. Let us not lose sight of that which you would have us cling to so that we don't suffer crisis. And Lord, I pray for that heart that is here today and they know in the deep recesses of their heart, their identity is not in you yet. And I pray that you'll tug on their heartstrings. I pray that you'll allow them and use your word as it was preached today to faithfully disclose to them that Jesus Christ is Lord, whether they say he is or not. And that they'll bend the knee to him. And they'll see the incredible blessing of being saved and rescued and not only that as we just read through those scriptures you'll lead us and allow us to experience the blessing of our identity you'll allow us to to carry our new identity and to carry your identity to other people as your as your kingdom comes we want your will to be done we want everyone to know christ's name help us father to be faithful in our evangelism help us to be faithful in our discipleship we thank you for the the graces that you lavish upon our life we ask all of this in the precious name of our identified savior jesus christ